Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. The word of the Lord is in the book of Galatians 3, chapter, um, Galatians chapter 3, verse 6 through 14. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And to them, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Excuse me. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is, who is hung on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, well, good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. That's where we're going to be starting this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our Advent series called The True and better, the true and better. And for those that aren't familiar with the term Advent, Advent is the season or the weeks leading up to Christmas. And the word Advent, Advent means arrival. And so during this season leading up to Christmas, we very much are anticipating, remembering, and looking forward to the arrival of Jesus when he was first came to earth and was born in a manger, but we also are anticipating and longing for and looking forward to his second advent, his second arrival, when he will return and restore all things. And so that is the season that we are in right now of, of waiting, of looking forward to, as well as remembering Jesus's first arrival. Okay, And as a church, we recognize that it can get easy to caught up, be caught up in all the busyness and the craziness of the Christmas season, especially in our culture, but we don't want to forget whose advent and whose arrival we should be looking forward to. You see, many times we are celebrating and anticipating the wrong advents, the wrong arrivals. Many times during this season, we are anticipating the advent or arrival of gifts or the advent or arrival of time with family, or the advent or arrival of, of holiday meals and fun movies and holiday traditions. And while all those things aren't in and of themselves bad or we shouldn't participate in them, they are not ultimately who, what advent or arrival we should be celebrating. We've been allowed, we've allowed ourselves to be taken captive by the Christmas season as opposed to being captivated by Christ. And so here at this church, we are trying to be very intentional in helping one another this season be captivated by Christ. And so the way that we are doing that in our Sunday morning sermons is uh, we are going through a series called The True and Better, where we are looking back through the Old Testament, and we are looking back at some Old Testament characters, and looking how those Old Testament characters are foreshadowing or pointing to Jesus' arrival. 
Uh, a quote I shared last week that I want to again mention was from a pastor named Martin DeHaan who once said this. He said, if we search long enough, we shall find upon every page of scripture standing somewhere in the shadow the outline of the central person of the book, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week we looked at Adam. We looked at how Adam and, and the Garden of Eden and all those events surrounding Adam, they were shadows. We, through those events, we saw shadows and glimpses of Jesus. We saw that Jesus was the true and better Adam. And we celebrated and, and enjoyed that what was lost in the garden has been won back by Jesus. And that although Adam failed to trust God in a garden, Jesus perfectly trusted God in the garden, and now his obedience is credited to us. So that's what we looked at last week. And this week, we're going to look at Abraham and not necessarily do a comprehensive study on Abraham, but look at how Abraham points to someone better who was coming, how Abraham anticipates a savior, a messiah, a, a Christ, a snake crusher, someone that would come after Abraham. And we're going to look at how Jesus is the true and better Abraham. So look with me now to learn a bit, of, uh, a bit more about Abraham. Let's look back at Genesis. So we're going to start in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now skip ahead to Genesis 15. We're going to go Genesis 15, uh, starting in verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Well, let's talk a little bit about Abram or Abraham. Now, Abraham's mama called him Abram, all right? But, G but God changed his name then to later Abraham, all right? Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude, okay? Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. And I will probably just refer to him as Abraham since that's what God calls him now, but I realize that our passage says Abram, all right? But that's a little backstory on Abram to Abraham. But God's plan in redemptive history was to call a people to himself, and through this people, a savior was going to come into the world and be born. And if you're not familiar with Genesis or, or much of the, the history of the nation of Israel, that's, that's okay, okay? But Abraham was before the nation of Israel even was, came about, all right? Abraham was before the promised land. Abraham was before slavery in Egypt or Moses or the Ten Commandments or any of that. Abraham was before all of that. And then think back even further to last week, Adam and in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in the Garden, creation did not trust their creator, 
and therefore rebelled against God. They were removed from God's presence, not because God is mean or because God is cruel, but because God is holy. But God from the beginning had a plan. The author of life loved his creation so much that in his plan, he was going to write himself into the story to rescue, redeem, and restore so that creation could once again trust and dwell with its creator. And so here with Abraham, we now see, get to see a part of this plan unfolding. We see shadows of what was to come through Jesus, God calling a people to himself through the obedience of one man. God calling a people to himself through the obedience of one man. God called Abraham to go. He called him to leave his country, to leave the familiarity of life, to leave the comfort and protection of his own land and his own family and his own household, and he said, go to the land that I will show you. Now, in those times, Abraham did not have Google Maps. He could not pull up a street view of where God was taking him, right? Just get a little glimpse as to what this land actually looked like. He didn't have Yelp where he could have got on and checked out some of the reviews of some of this land that God was sending him to. It was the unknown. He didn't know. And especially in those times, your safety, your security, your financial income was tied to your land and your livestock and your family. And there was certainly some safety in numbers going on back then, all right? But God called Abraham to go, to leave the comfortable, to leave what he knew and what he could see, to go out to the unknown and to become vulnerable, to become vulnerable. Why? Because ever since the beginning, God has desired his creation to trust their creator. And many times, humanity must be called away from the comfortable and familiar so that they will stop trusting in their own strength and abilities, but instead trust in God's strength and abilities. So let me say that again. Many times humanity must be called away from the comfortable and familiar so that they will stop trusting in their own strength and abilities and start trusting in God's strength and abilities. And Abraham answered God's call and he went. Now, he imperfectly went, okay, and there was a few hiccups along the way. Uh, he took kind of matters into his own hands at time, even trying to have a son the, his own way, his own reasoning. He got scared. He said his wife, Sarah, was his sister a couple of times. So he imperfectly went. He imperfectly went, but nevertheless, God called, and he did go. And his going and his trusting and him becoming vulnerable, yes, it is an example for us, but it is also giving glimpses of Jesus, the true and better Abraham. And like uh, the words that Tim Keller wrote in that video that we just watched, Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. So what Joshua, what we read from the, the book of John, John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. Jesus, the Word, being fully God, eternally existing, being there in the beginning, the one who through all things were made, put on flesh to dwell among us, and we have seen his glory. Just as Abraham was called to go so that God could create and draw a people to himself called the nation of Israel, excuse me, so too Jesus came to earth to form and create a new people of God. Think back then to Genesis 12. The call of Abraham was accompanied with promises and a covenant. It was accompanied with promises and a covenant. God, God gave three promises. He said, I will make you a great nation. That's number one. He said, I will bless you and make your name great. That's number two. And number three, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he accompanied the call with some promises as well as a covenant. Well, let's first talk about this idea of a covenant, okay? What is a covenant? A covenant is a promise-bound relationship between two or more parties, okay? It is a promise-bound relationship between two or more parties. It binds two parties together through promises that are made. And so humans, we make covenants with one another. This often happens in marriage, right, where you read vows. You make promises to one another, and that binds you together. That covenants you together. But then through the Bible, we see covenants a little differently because we see that these are initiated by God, God making covenants with people. And we see all throughout the Bible God covenanting with people by binding himself to promises, and the Hebrew word for covenant comes from the word meaning to cut, to cut. Now, the reason that's important is because I think the imagery is really cool. You see, back in Abraham's day when covenants were made, they didn't take a pen and paper and just sign a contract. No, they participated in a ceremony that I think the imagery really sticks with you and is helpful to understand just the weight and the depth of what a covenant was. So, promises were made between two or more parties, but then what they would do is they would take animals, they would cut them in two, lay them in two sides on either side, and then the two parties that were entering into a covenant would walk in between the cut-up animals, okay? That seems a little weird, seems a little odd, but what they were signifying by walking through the cut-up animals, what they were saying is, may I be torn apart like these animals if I fail to uphold my part of the covenant, that's what that was signifying. By walking through cut-up animals, they were saying, if this covenant is broken, I am cursed like these dead, torn-apart animals are. Here's what's cool about the covenant with Abraham. Abraham prepares the animals, he cuts them in two, and then what does God do? He causes Abraham to go into a deep sleep, and God alone passes through the cut-up animals, signifying that God alone sealed the covenant and accepted all the covenantal obligations. If the covenant was broken and brought a curse, then God would take the curse upon himself. Abraham was snoozing, and God alone passed through the animals, sealing the covenant. In this ceremony, we see God choose to commit himself to the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, and we see this then play out in the true and better Abraham, 
named Jesus, who died as a substitute for us covenant breakers. We see the true and better Abraham take the curse upon himself. So God calls Abraham to go. He then makes a divine covenant. He makes a promise to make him into a great nation and a new people. And in the immediate sense, this was fulfilled through Abraham and his immediate descendants and the nation of Israel, which in and of itself is miraculous because Abraham and Sarah couldn't have children, and they were kind of past that baby-making phase of life. So even that in and of itself was miraculous. He did create a new people when he formed the nation of Israel, but he had even a farther reach in mind where the people of God would not just be made up of a certain ethnicity, race, or lineage, but where the people of God would be from every tribe, sorry, every tribe, tongue, and language, therefore and thereby fulfilling the promise that in Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so in Jesus, we have seen this promise fulfilled that a new people of God have been formed through the obedience of Jesus and through God taking the curse of the covenant upon himself. And that Abraham is not just the father of those in his biological family tree, but he is now the father of all those who have a faith like his. So go now to Galatians 3. Go now to Galatians 3. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Galatians 3, verse 6. Galatians 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So here we see Paul clarify, now, who are the sons of Abraham? And I know most of you know that Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I am actually one of them. And so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, okay? Right arm. All right, here we go. No, we don't have time for the whole song, but it's a good song, all right? Uh, now, I can't do the whole song. The, the up-down spin-around is a death sentence for anyone with vertigo, all right? So we won't do the full song, but it's a good song, all right? But you see, when Paul wrote Galatians, there were certain Jewish people that boasted all the time about their heritage, about their lineage, about their father being Abraham, and how they were sons of Abraham because of being born into into that family tree. And they got upset with the Gentiles or the non-Jews for not conforming to all their rituals and things that they would do. And there was this pride amongst some of the Jews that claimed that they were right with God because they were sons of Abraham, because they were simply born into this family tree. 
And Dr. Riken, who's the president of Wheaton College now, he said that those Jews had pride in their heritage. They didn't want to see the Gentiles a part of it, or if the Gentiles were a part of it, they needed to conform to all the customs and rituals of the Jewish people. And so they probably, those, those Jews that had that pride in their heritage and didn't want to see the Gentiles a part of it, they probably sang more of a song like this. It probably went more something like this, okay? It was probably like, uh, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, but you are not. So let's all go get circumcised, all right? It was probably something like that, okay? I don't know. It's not as catchy. It's not as catchy. I agree. That one did not stick. I like our version better, uh, not only because it's a better song, but it probably saved uh, the kids' workers from having to explain circumcision as often uh, to the kids, okay? But I mainly like our version of the song because God's people are not just limited to a certain ethnicity, race, or lineage, but we know that the people of God are from every tribe, tongue, and language, therefore fulfilling the promise that in Abraham's offspring all the families of the earth have been blessed, and therefore all those whose faith is in Christ are included in the people of God. Praise God. Praise God. We can sing our version of Father Abraham. Well, we just finished 1 Peter a few weeks ago, and let me remind you that Peter also affirmed this idea of a new people of God when he addressed Jews and Gentiles in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. So this was written to both Jews and Gentiles. He said, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father Abraham stepped out into the unknown and the uncomfortable, and he has now become a prototype of what the people of God in Christ are to look like. We are to be people of faith. We are people that are in this new family, this new people of God, because of our faith. Back in Galatians 3, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Jesus, the true and better Abraham, came to create a people for his own possession, and his people are to be a people of faith, a people of faith. And let me warn you, church, there are many who are strained from the faith that Abraham had. Even more frightening, there are many people who go to church who are strained from the faith that Abraham had. And even more saddening, there are many Christians whose joy is being stolen because they are strained from the faith that Abraham had. So in Elise Fitzpatrick's book, Give Them Grace, which is a, grace, a great book, and it is, it is a grace book too, um, I would recommend it to you all. Let me read a quote from her, okay? She said, the primary reason the majority of kids from Christian homes stray from the faith is that they never really heard it or had it to begin with. Scratch the surface of the faith of the young people around you, and you'll find a disturbing deficiency of understanding of even the most basic tenets of Christianity. So then she goes on to illustrate that she interviews a young, uh, a young lady who claims to be a Christian, grew up in a Christian home, was in church her whole life, okay? So this is her interview with her. Elise Fitzpatrick said, what does it mean to be a Christian? 
She replied, it means that you asked Jesus into your heart. Yes, all right, but what does that mean? It means that you asked Jesus to forgive you. Okay, but what do you ask him to forgive you for? Bad things, I guess. You ask him to forgive you for bad things, the sins you do? Like what? A deer in the headlights stared back at me. I thought I'd try a different tack. Why would Jesus forgive you? She fidgeted, uh, because you asked him. I asked, what do you think God wants you to know? She beamed. He wants me to know that I should love myself and that there's nothing I can't do if I think I can. And what does God want from you, I asked. He wants me to do good stuff, you know, be nice to others, don't hang around with the bad people. Apparently, we've transformed the holy, terrifying, magnificent, and loving God of the Bible into Santa and his elves. And instead of transmitting the gloriously liberating and life-changing truths of the gospel, we have taught our children that, God, that what God wants from them is morality. We have told them that being good, at least outwardly, is the be-all and end-all of their faith. This isn't the gospel. We're not handing down Christianity. Now, that should scare us a little bit in a, in a healthy way, okay? We're not handing down Christianity. That's not the gospel. Another example of this. Now, this was a few years ago, but I think it helps us get an idea on the pulse of our culture, okay? So this was when Jay Leno was on The Tonight Show, so it was a few years ago, and he was doing his street interviews where he would just go up and ask random questions to random people. And this particular night, the question he was asking is if someone could name to him at least one of the Ten Commandments, all right? The most common response people gave was this one. God helps those who help themselves. That was the number one uh, answer for name one of the Ten Commandments. God helps those who help themselves. Then I came across a stat that said 70% of U.S. Christians, 70% of Christians believe that the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. Now let me clarify first. That is not one of the Ten Commandments, all right? That's not one of them. It didn't make the list. And that idea and understanding is not biblical Christianity. And it stands in direct opposition of the gospel and to the faith that Abraham had and to the faith that God's people are to have. God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those who can't help themselves. Well, what was the faith of Abraham? That's what we need to be about, right? If we were going to be sons of Abraham, have a faith like Abraham, what was the faith that Abraham had? Well, first, what is faith? Faith is the conviction or belief of a truth. So it's you believing something, but it's even more than that. It's more than just belief. It also has the concept included of a trust, a reliance, and a dependence. So yes, it includes the idea of believing something, but there's also this aspect that you are trusting, relying, and depending upon it. So what did Abraham have faith in? What did he believe and trust and rely and depend upon? He didn't have the four spiritual laws booklet back then, right? He didn't have the bridge diagram where it's like man and God, and then there's this cross that bridges the gap. Like he didn't have one of those he was looking at, all right? He didn't have sermons to listen to. He didn't have a, any sort of gospel track or study he could go through. But what he had faith in was this. He had faith that through one of his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
He had faith that there would be a Messiah, a Christ, that would take the obligations and consequences of the covenant upon himself. And then listen to these words from Romans 4, 20 through 22. You need to go home and read all of Romans 4 today, but just two verses right now. Romans 4, verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. This is speaking of Abraham. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, here it is. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Ultimately, Abraham had faith that God was able to do what he promised. I've heard it described that Abraham had faith in the shadow. We have faith in the sunlight. What Abraham believed and looked forward to is what we look back to and believe. The glory of Jesus has been revealed to us. We've seen what the snake crusher looks like and how through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the requirements and the consequences of the past covenants have been met. And so just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so too we can believe God and have righteousness credited to us. Well, what does faith not look like? All right, what does faith not look like? Abraham's life, it gives us a good picture of what true faith looks like, but it also gives us some examples of what faith does not look like, all right? And we've talked a little bit about how he wasn't perfect, and this is why there needed to be a true and better Abraham that was to come. Now, Abraham had been given a promise from God that he would become a great nation and that his descendants would be as many as the stars, which sounds great, just one problem, Abraham had no kids and he was really, really old. So he's trying to trust God, he's trying to have faith, but at one point he decides to try to help God out. He tries to take things into his own hands, which I think many of us are guilty of that. We have a faith in God, but then at times we're like, you know, I'm going to help him out a little bit here. So he's saying, I know God said this, but based upon my own reasoning and my own understanding, Sarah is really old. I can't, I'll trust my own understanding and I'll, I'll be intimate with Hagar and we'll have a son through Hagar and maybe that's how all this is gonna play out. God probably needs me to help him out a little bit in these promises that he made. And so Ishmael, the son Hagar had, is an example and a picture of self-trust and human effort in trying to help God out. That is not what being fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised, that is not what that looks like. That is not what saving faith looks like. Real faith is transferring your trust from yourself and throwing yourself completely onto Jesus. John Murray, he said this, he said, as opposed to Ishmael, the birth of Isaac is a way of relating to God by trusting in his promises alone. Helpless man reaching out for divine help. You see, we've all had faith in something. We've all been trusting something or someone other than God. Maybe we've been trusting in our own reasoning and understanding. Maybe we've been trusting in our own actions or good works. 
Maybe we've been trusting in the fact that we went to Christian camps growing up. Maybe we've been trusting in the fact that at one point we, we prayed a sinner's prayer. We asked Jesus into our hearts. Or maybe we've been trusting that we've gone on mission trips. We've been in church. We've had grown up in Christian families and that we've tried to be good people. None of those things will save you. And putting your faith and trust in any of those things is pointless because they will fail you. All those good works and good things that you have done are what Galatians 3 is warning when it says this. Look back at Galatians 3 verse 10. For all who rely on works, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by God by the, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Now here's the good news, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles. That's you, that's me. And in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to us. Because Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, we can now be justified. We can be declared right before God. We no longer have to rely on our works for a right standing with God, for we know that we have all sinned and we all deserve punishment. But in Christ, God took the punishment of the broken covenant upon himself. God says, I will take your punishment. I will give you my righteousness. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In Christ, people from every tribe, tongue, and language have received the blessing of justification, being declared right before God, and the gift and the blessing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is a faith that is in Christ, it is a faith that believes and trusts that God is able to do what he promised to do. But this idea of faith, I fear it can still be a little elusive to us at times to really try to get our mind around this idea of faith. And what does that really mean to say that we have faith in Christ? I mean, you'll probably hear me say that a lot of times, like, put your faith in Christ, like, trust Christ, put your faith in Christ. But how, how can we really get our mind around that? Well, there was a few days, uh, a few months ago, there was a day that I went running, all right? Now, there's this trail that goes from our neighborhood, and it goes uh, through downtown and through the parks, and really, Franklin in general, like the, the trails and the parks are all pretty cool. You should definitely move here, okay? Uh, but anyway, I was running on this trail, and there's this one part of the trail that I really enjoy, because you kind of, you're, you're going alongside a neighborhood, but then you enter, and you're just surrounded by trees, and, and for a moment there, you just feel like you're out away from it all, and you're just in this secluded forest, Okay? And it was just after it had stormed. 
And so there were ton, tons of branches just covering the trail, which I thought was pretty cool because as I'm running, you know, I'm just like stomping on the sticks, hearing the crunch and just trampling on them. And I was, I was just, I was having a blast. It was still early in the run, so I still felt good and everything, okay? Uh, uh, it was still very early in the run. Uh, but then there was a stick that I was about to step on and it moved. And I jumped back, and I'll be honest, I screamed like a middle school girl, okay? All right? Because that stick was not a stick. It was actually a snake, all right? Now, I grew up out in California where we had rattlesnakes that were fairly common. Trails that we went on always said, you know, beware of rattlesnakes. It was like, oh, thanks, sign. I'll keep an eye out for them, you know? So I've developed a healthy fear of snakes. I think it's a healthy fear, all right? Now, this snake, it was probably just like a gardener snake or whatever, but it startled me. And, and nonetheless, I kind of I flew back and I was scared, all right? Uh, now, after I had picked up my pride and made sure that no one saw me, okay, I started to kind of keep going on my run, and I eventually made it out through the woods. But all along the way, I was timidly and anxiously kind of tiptoeing through the trail because, you know, it was covered in sticks, right? So I kind of just fearfully and anxiously and timidly finally made it through the trail. I was fearful because if there were dangerous snakes in there, which I'm sure there was just tons of dangerous snakes in there, If one bit me, I wasn't really confident that I had the strength or the ability to to cure myself. Now, I'm not not an expert on what you do with a snake bite, but I, I was pretty sure that if I got bit in the foot that I wasn't flexible enough to be able to, like, suck the venom out or something like that, right? So I had little confidence in my own strength or ability to cure myself from a snake bite if I got it. So I fearfully and anxiously made it through the path. I knew that in my own strength and in my own ability, I would not be able to save myself from a snake bite. So I finally made it through. I breathed a sigh of relief. But here's the thing about my running routes. At some point, I have to turn around and run back. And I was not looking forward to that part. In my head, I was thinking, is there some other way I could run back home? Could I fake an injury and call an ambulance or something like that? I was trying to think of some other way to avoid that trail. And then a bike starts coming from the opposite direction, starts coming towards me. And I see that the bike is going to go through the trail. So I turn around And I start running right behind the bike. Why? Because I know the bike will either crush any snake in its path or it will at least scare them off so it'll clear the path for me. So I start running with a joyful boldness and courage into the woods, into the unknown. That same path that I had just tiptoed anxiously and fearfully through except now I'm not relying on my own abilities and strength to fight off the snake. I'm relying on the ability and the strength of the one who has gone before me. And if you think I'm still talking about a trail in Franklin, you need to keep up, all right? What happened in that story was there was a transfer of trust that took place. If you want to know what it means to have faith in Christ, 
If you want to know what it means to have a faith like Father Abraham had, if you want to know what it means to have to be righteous, that the righteous live by faith, here it is. It means stop trusting in your own abilities and actions for your salvation and start trusting in what snake crusher King Jesus has accomplished for you and is accomplishing in you. Jesus, the promised one, the one prophesied about that would crush the serpent's head, he came to earth born as a baby in a manger, and he walked amongst his creation, and he lived the perfectly obedient life that we failed to live, and he died the sacrificial death on a cross in our place, and three days later, he rose from the dead, crushing the snake's head, defeating Satan's sin and death, and he's now ruling, reigning, and restoring all things, and he has called out a people for himself. And it is a people of faith that trust in his ability and, accomplish for their, and accomplishments for their salvation, not their own. Let me say that again. It is a people of faith that trust in his ability and accomplishments for their salvation, not their own. Hear these words from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. The founder and perfecter of our faith. If you have stopped trusting in your own strength and abilities, but instead trust in God's strength and abilities for your salvation, if you have done that, if there has been a transfer of trust that is a miraculous gift and evidence that something supernatural has happened in your heart. Well, many times, excuse me, all the times, Jesus is the founder of our faith, but he's also the perfecter of our faith. Because our faith is also something that will continue to need to be strengthened and perfected by Jesus. And many times he does this like he did with Abraham. He calls you out into the uncomfortable and the unknown. He's going to call you out to places where you do feel vulnerable. He's going to call you out onto the trail that is full of sticks, danger, and the unknown. And he's doing this so that you will continue to trust in the one who has gone before you. God called Abraham to go, to leave the comfortable, to leave what he knew and could see, to go out into the unknown and to become vulnerable. Because ever since the beginning, God has desired his creation to trust their creator. We are called away from the comfortable and familiar so that we will stop trusting in our own strength and abilities, but instead trust in God's strength and abilities for our salvation. And just as Abraham was called to go so that God would create and draw a people to himself, so too Jesus came to earth to form and create a new people of God, a people that would be a people whose faith for their salvation would fully rely and rest upon Jesus. So church, may we 
have faith in Jesus, the true and better Abraham. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you, Lord, that you are the founder and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that you entered into the story, God. That you humbled yourself, that you put on flesh to walk amongst us, to live amongst us, God. Your, your, your created beings to walk and live with us, God. We thank you for that. And God, we thank you that you are ruling, reigning, and restoring, and that you are drawing a people to yourself. And God, I ask that you would reignite our faith. That God, if we've started to maybe trust in our own abilities and our own strengths and our own comforts, God, I ask that you would call us out to the uncomfortable and the unfamiliar and the vulnerable so that we might trust and rely solely on you. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.